Welcome back to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. We pop on out to the KDOS hotline as we're joined by James Herbert, CBSSports.com, to have an NBA, NBA playoffs conversation. James, it's Bob and Kayla. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining the program here. Let's begin this conversation here locally. The Chris Paul injury. The team is saying he is day to day. There are other reports uh, that suggest it's much more significant than that. I do think it is fair to say that his production hasn't been the same this season, but on a team that doesn't have a lot of depth from your vantage point, how crippling is this son's injury uh, to Chris Paul trying to come back down 0-2 to the Nuggets? Yeah, it's not good news for the Suns team. I don't think you can just look at Chris Paul and, like, how many points he's averaging lately and say, oh, it's not that big a deal. Like, no, like, he plays a really big role for this team, and and I think you can just look at how it played out in in the last game. And he was actually starting to get going, like, right before he got hurt and went out of the game. Like, he found that space in the middle against the drop and made a couple of those mid-range jumpers, those, like, classic Chris Paul shots. Um, And the game was pretty close at that point. Too, and I thought they just they had trouble after that finding the right lineups, finding any sort of kind of organization or flow on offense. And I think not having Paul there, whether it's just for his spacing um, away from the ball or just as another guy who can initiate offense and kind of get people in the right spots, like they did really miss that. They missed it particularly because Cameron Payne was missing everything. And because I think Monty Williams was kind of trying and searching to find the right offensive combination anyway. Like, I think that really did have an enormous impact on that game. I think it's a little different when you have a couple of days to prepare and you know that CP will be out. I think you'll probably see a better version of Payne if he knows he's going to get those minutes and he knows that he doesn't have to be looking over his shoulder if he misses a jumper or anything like that. And I think you'll probably see some downstream effects over the course of the game in terms of like who gets in the game. Monty Williams has already said um, that he plans to use guys like Terrence Ross and TJ Warren more, um, give those guys a shot, just give the Suns some other sources of offense on the floor so it doesn't devolve into just, you know, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant kind of staring at a defense that's loaded up against them and trying to make difficult shots, which like we've seen them make plenty of times. Those are supposed to be bailout shots at the end of the shot clock, not like the only things that the Suns are getting in their offense. You want know, to ask you about the Nuggets a little bit here. Uh, let, let's start with uh, Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon. Uh, they've definitely improved their offensive games in the last, well, you know, Porter defensively, Gordon offensively, but they're more well-rounded players the last couple of years. Is that an accurate assessment of those two guys in your opinion, and how much better have they made the Nuggets as opposed to the last couple of years? Yeah, I think a lot of it is context because what Aaron Gordon was doing in Orlando was completely different than his job in Denver. I mean, that that season when he spent the first half of the year um, with the Magic before the trade, there were times when he was functioning as effectively their point guard in the half court because of some injuries they were going through. He was their number one option on offense a lot of the time. Um, I, I don't think that was ever sort of his destiny as an NBA player now, like if he gets a mismatch on him or something, you can see him pull out that jumper. You can see him put the ball on the floor. He's certainly 
um, really good when he gets the ball on the floor and is able to attack space. Like, it's not like he doesn't have playmaking skills, but he's not like he shouldn't be your lead offensive initiator or anything like that. Like, this is the absolute perfect situation for him offensively because of the way that the Nuggets play. It doesn't matter that he's kind of an inconsistent three point shooter um, as much as it would on other teams. Like, he gets all these opportunities from cutting off the ball. He has great chemistry with Jokic, basically the second that he arrived um, in Denver. He gets stuff in transition that they didn't get as easily before he was on the team. He can crash the offensive glass. He can do a whole bunch of stuff. And, oh, by the way, he is this, like, super versatile elite defender that, I mean, they've put him on centers. They've put him on point guards at times. He can kind of guard whoever they want him to. Like, I, I think, like, he truly has found his NBA home. If I were him, I would want to stay attached to Jokic for the rest of my career because it is just so perfect. For him and, and with Porter, I, I think you have seen like real development from him uh, on the defensive end. I think he understands what his job is there. You see that sort of weak side rim protection um, that he provides just because he's like super long and big. He's not like the most aware defender in the world, but you can watch the tape from a few years ago and compare to what he's done in this series. And I think it's a really big difference. And then on the offensive end, yeah, I mean, he, he gets a lot of open looks that he wouldn't get on other teams again because he plays next to Jokic and, and Jamal Murray. Um, but also, like, when he's on the floor and Jokic isn't, like, you see him take a little bit more difficult shots, self-create a little bit more. You see him, he's, again, the kind of guy that plays in the shot clock to get him the ball. He can shoot over anybody. Um, he can make those kind of plays. But that's not what he's doing most of the time. Like, I, I think... He has kind of sacrificed in terms of a guy that came into the NBA probably thinking he was going to be um, this sort of offensive superstar. He is not that, but he does get his point. Um, and he's on a team that has, you know, it was the best team in the West in the regular season. Um, and uh, I, I think the whole system is sort of calibrated for those guys to thrive right now. James Herbert, CBSSports.com here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra point. Admittedly, during the play-in tournament, I was thinking to myself that maybe it was just time to accept that the Heat have been showing us who they've been all season long. We're used to defense. We're used to physicality. Something was just missing, but they made it through the play-in. They survived the injury to Tyler Hero to top the Bucks behind Jimmy Butler's insane playoff performances. The Heat, though, have been more than just Butler, so what's clicking for this team right now yeah it's been such a strange season for them obviously the story has become a much more positive one lately and but like it does feel familiar when you're watching them um in these playoffs like because just like the heat teams of the past like last year comes to mind the bubble comes to mind like they get it done in a variety of different ways like jimmy butler goes out um after that ankle injury in game one and in game two they're like all right well we're gonna get up a ton of threes and we're going to play a ton of zone. And they're going to sort of approach this matchup with the personnel they have and just try to um, get the most out of them. They have always found these guys in the scrap heap, these undrafted players, um, and carved out roles for them, ha- allowed them to thrive um, in their system. I think they set a record for points scored um, by undrafted players in a playoff game in, in game two, which is, I guess, like, it is impressive. It's also when half your rotation is those guys that's kind of bound to happen. Um, but, I mean, I love the way that they've been competing defensively. And then also, like, the, the, the sort of strategic stuff that Spolstra has been doing, it just, it's impressive every year. It's been extremely impressive this year, um, particularly the way they're prepared for that Bucks matchup 
in the first round. And like what they did at the end of game five, I thought was like kind of brilliant. Like they, they had Bam Adebayo initiating the offense, uh, drawing Brooke Lopez out of the paint. And they were finding like layups that way. Like that is how um, Jimmy Butler ended up getting um, that lob play was because they understood how he was going to get defended coming off of the screen. They took Adebayo out of the game and Milwaukee responded by taking Lopez out of the game and Spolstra kind of saw all of that coming and Butler saw all of that coming too. They're just a really smart team. They're a really hard playing team. And it turns out they're a really resilient team, which I didn't know that that was necessarily the case when they lost their first play in game. You, you mentioned Spolster. You mentioned a couple of examples there about, you know, just strategical things with him. Why does he always seem to be ahead of whoever he's coaching against in the postseason? And this has been going on for a few years. You mentioned the bubble, and you know, certainly last year taking the Celtics into the you know close to the brink in the playoffs a year ago, and and so forth. And you know, you know, I used to just think, well, it's kind of like Pat Riley Jr., but he's way beyond that now, right? Yeah, I, I think he's just. I mean, he is an excellent coach. He's kind of seen everything at this point, and I think he's not afraid to think on his feet and make adjustments. And it's not just okay, we're like two games into the series, this isn't going well now. We, do we have to change the starting lineup? Do we have to figure out a different strategy? It's like possession to possession. He will see things and he'll adjust on the fly. Like the, the way they were defending the Knicks in the first half of game one and the second half of game one was night and day. They, they gave up like 40 paint points um, in the first half, which is about what the Heat gave up on average in a game during the season. And they kind of looked at the Knicks roster and they're like, how, like why are we doing this? Um, we're going to pack the paint. Um, they had, when Josh Hart would set a screen, even though he's defended by a perimeter player, they would drop against that screen as if like it was a, a center uh, doing it because they didn't care if Josh Hart shot threes. And then the Heat um, basically changed the, the second half story entirely because of that. The Knicks um, were stuck either forcing up bad shots in the paint or taking open threes with kind of shaky three-point shooters uh, and Miami came away with the victory on the road, which is like not easy to do at all. Like that was not just Jimmy Butler plays hero and goes off for 50. That was a really smart defensive adjustment at halftime that won them that game. And then when they went into the second game and they knew they didn't have Butler, who was by the way, a huge part of their defense as well as their offense, they were like, all right, we're going to do this completely differently. Even than we did in the second half of game three, like they went to a zone um, fairly early on in that game. And I'm not even sure that they came out of it. Like They, they had re- really good results in, in that zone. Most teams kind of use that as a change of pace. But the Heat were basically like the Knicks are going to have to show us that they can beat this zone um, before we stop doing it. And that zone kept them in the game right up until the end. They didn't pull it out, but I thought the strategy was really sound. James Herbert, CBSSports.com here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra point. Uh, on the Knicks side of things here, you know, we've seen Julius Randle in and out of the lineup. Uh, you could also say maybe a little bit in and out of being effective as well. So who for the Knicks, though, has to step up and start being a factor? I, I think they would love for quickly to step up and provide a little bit of extra offense um, coming off of the bench. He was you know, he's a runner-up for sixth man of the year this year. Was a huge part of their team. He changed a lot of games. He, um, some games when when Brunson was out, he became their sort of lead playmaker on the perimeter and had some some huge nights. And he just hasn't looked all that comfortable in this series. Um, I don't know like what they can necessarily do to free him up. He's typically a very confident player, 
um, but he has had a lot of trouble getting to his spots. He's, when he has taken his little floaters and flip shots, they have generally been pretty well contested, and he has not been taking a whole bunch of pull-up threes and nailing them. He has not been getting a ton of opportunities in transition. He's a guy um, that if they can get playing sort of freely and get him to see the ball go in the hoop a couple of times, um, I think that might open up some other things for other players on the offensive end. And I, like other than that, I mean, it, it's just basically all about the three-point shooting, right? Like, I mean, they, they made 40% of their threes in game two. That's why they won that game. We know Miami is going to continue to try to make them beat them from the perimeter rather than getting where they want to go on the inside. Um, and it's going to be up to guys like R.J. Barrett and Josh Hart and Quentin Grimes, all, all these dudes to just step up and hit those threes. Even Julius Randle, like – the Heat will send extra bodies at him when he is in the mid-post trying to create. If he is just spotting up on the perimeter, like they, they will largely live with those shots. They'll contest them, but they would much rather him getting those than bullying people on the inside. Warriors and Lakers, uh, game two tonight. You know, the Warriors are not blessed, blessed with a lot of length at the, to begin with, but you know, when they went small, it seemed like they were more effective in that game on uh, on Tuesday night, do you expect them to go small again? Or was that just when they went small, they were desperate, they were chasing points? Uh, does that play a role tonight at all? I think it's, I think it, it's both. They, they they were chasing points. Like, Steve Kerr um, basically said as much after the game. It's like, we just needed offense. We were down, and the time was running out. Um, and we thought this was kind of the best option. He also mentioned that his assistants had been trying to, like, get him to do that earlier on in the game. And I, and I think... Maybe they should have. Like, what, what it really made me think about as I was watching it um, was the Memphis Grizzlies series against the Lakers in the first round. You look at um, the way the Lakers just, like, obliterated the Grizzlies in that series-deciding game. Um, well, a lot of that was because Luke Kennard didn't play a single minute. The previous game, Memphis had won fairly easily, and the huge storyline coming out of that one was, oh, look what Memphis finally did. They played Kennard and Desmond Bain together. They tried to space the Lakers out and make them guard the perimeter this is a defense that is insanely good at protecting the paint largely because of anthony davis so what you really should be trying to do is like force him to leave that area open things up for other guys to attack the basket or just for your shooters to to get open threes pull up threes all of that stuff and i think the warriors whether it's because they go small or whether it's because they just try to like involve ad and pick and rolls like however you can get him like you need to get him out of the paint and you need to get threes up just like they did in game one, even though they lost that game, um, that, that has to kind of be the strategy. I think it's a lot easier to do that when you don't have two players on the court that the Lakers can just completely ignore and pack the paint against. Um, but you can, the Warriors have in the past found ways to create those same type of looks by being creative with how they use Looney and Draymond and now Gary Payton, the second and guys like that who aren't being defended, um, just finding ways to like involve the the paint protector and screening action on the perimeter, even off the ball and stuff like that. So I think that has to be the priority. It's easier if you go small, and I think you'll see more of it than you saw in game one. Um, but I don't know that they'll necessarily start the game that way. I don't even know if they'll close the game that way again. But you'll, you should see more of it. 
Uh, the Lakers and the Warriors Tuesday game averaged 7.36 million viewers, you, which happened to be the largest first or second round audience on cable in 11 years. We also saw uh, records being broken in the first round of games on ESPN as well. And the ratings have kind of been bonanza so far. So what do we attribute this to? Have people just been starved for really good basketball since the regular season was just pretty mediocre? I think there's two things, and I'll, I guess I'll start with the main thing. Is like this Warriors Lakers series is not your ordinary second round series at all. I mean, first of all, it's Warriors Lakers. Second, it's LeBron death, and that is typically a finals matchup. That is, I think, must see TV for not just like basketball nerds like myself, but like casual fans, like people who only watch a few basketball games a year. Like you can very easily get excited about this series and this story. It's the defending champs. Um, who, you know, had a trying regular season, whatever, uh, against this, you know, different version of LeBron who was trying to get it done in a different way with a team that, again, had this up-and-down regular season but seems to be coming together, maybe even peaking at the right time coming into the playoffs. And, um, you know, everybody remembers all the battles that Steph and LeBron have had in the finals. Those were um, some of the best series. Well, I mean, one of them was one of the best series that we've seen um, at least, and I think that's just a really easy way to get eyeballs on the sport. I mean, there's a reason those, like LeBron and Steph, have played so many times on Christmas over the years. It's just an insanely good second-round matchup. Beyond that, I mean, the first round was awesome. I just I thought uh, almost every series um, was super competitive. The, the Kings-Warriors first-round series that went seven in particular um, was one of the best first-round series that I can remember, like in, in recent NBA history. Like, I, I was you know, glued to every second of that, not just because it's my job and I had to be because it was really fun. And like, I, I do think that that series was one of the ones that did set some records that did bring in a lot of viewers. And that, that makes perfect sense to me. Celtics and Sixers uh, now tied at one. Joel Embiid gave it a go last night. Not sure if he should have given it a go last night. Can he still be a dominant player in this series unless he has some kind of medical miracle comeback? Uh, not looking great on that front. Like my, my thought watching it was he shouldn't have come back. I, I didn't think right. the Sixers as a whole had anything resembling the rhythm that they had in game one, he was kind of deferring to other guys. Other guys were kind of deferring to him. Um, he was not able to do a whole lot other than protect the rim, which, by the way, he protected the rim great. Like, he got, like, five blocks in 27 minutes or something, and um, I think he discouraged some Celtics players from attacking the basket. But at other times, I mean, the Celtics were able to space him out and attack the basket, get to the line, all of that stuff. Like, it was a really convincing Celtics win. Um, and I think the best argument uh, for having – brought him back in the second game clearly kind of ahead of schedule was made by both Embiid and Doc Rivers after the game was they said they just wanted to get this one out of the way and that obviously he was going to be rusty he was not going to look like himself but if they had waited till game three then he would have been rusty and not himself in game three and then you're further along in the series maybe you're down to one at that point like you just kind of want to get this first one over with but I mean the other comment Embiid made that would worry me uh, greatly if I were a, a Sixers fan is that like with the injury he has like he's supposed to be out four to six weeks and this has been like about two weeks um, this is well ahead of the normal schedule for this type of sprain in, in the knee he did not move like he moved the last time 
um, that, that I saw him play. Uh, and, yeah, I just it, – it's, it's a big risk. I get why it happened. And, I, like, I'm just sort of like, all right, well, we'll see. Like, I don't expect him to be at an MVP level, but I do think he needs to be at a higher level in terms of, of at least, like, conditioning and confidence and decision-making on offense than, than we saw last night. And his teammates also have to get used to his presence again as well. James, we always greatly appreciate you taking some time for us on the program, and we'll do it again here real soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Once again, he is James Herbert there with CBSSports.com.